Hello, everyone, and welcome to the July 4th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. Assembly Bill 5, a new California law in September 2018, has generated outrage from a wide range of Californians, from musicians to therapists to truckers and freelance journalists. The new law, codified as the ABC test previously set forth in the Dynamax Operations uh, West Incorporated versus Superior Court of Los Angeles case, a test used to determine if workers are classified as employees or independent contractors. AB5 and its subsequent amendments are now codified in Labor Code Section 2778. The new law requires businesses to classify more workers as employees entitled to benefits like sick leave and overtime pay and workers' compensation. But some workers affected by AB5 say it's caused them nothing but grief such as members of the American Society of Journalists and Authors and the National Press Photographers Association, who filed a federal lawsuit challenging the new law on First Amendment and equal protection grounds. The Society of Journalists and Authors, ASJA, is the nation's largest professional organization of independent nonfiction writers, and its membership consists of more than 1,100 freelance writers. The National Press Photographers Association, NPPA, is an association made up of still photographers, television videographers, editors, and students in the journalism field, and it was founded back in 1946. As of 2017, NPPA had total membership of just over 6,000 members. The lawsuit the organizations filed was dismissed by the trial court, so they filed an appeal. In a 3-0 ruling, the 9th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in San Francisco concluded that the California law does not interfere with freedom of speech or the press in its published opinion. The panel acknowledged that although the ABC classification may indeed impose greater costs on hiring entities, which in turn could mean fewer overall job opportunities for certain workers, such an indirect impact on speech does not necessarily rise to the level of a First Amendment violation. Addressing the equal protection challenge, the panel held that the legislature's occupational distinctions were rationally related to a legitimate state purpose. So the plaintiffs then filed a petition for writ of certiorari with the United States Supreme Court in February 2022, hoping to overturn the decision of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. The Supreme Court, however, just denied review of the appeal by the two organizations without comment on the merits. So the dismissal of their case by a federal judge and the approval of that dismissal by an appellate court has no further avenues in the judicial system. 
And in a separate case, the Supreme Court rejected an appeal last October by trucking companies challenging the classification of truck owners' operators as employees under AB5. And a review of an appeal by another trucking group was also rejected by the Supreme Court this week. The ride-hailing companies Uber and Lyft won an exemption from AB5 in November 2020 when California voters approved Proposition 22, allowing them to classify their drivers as contract independent contractors after a campaign in which the company spent more than $200 million. But an Alameda County Superior Court judge struck down Proposition 22 last August saying the measure interfered with the legislature's authority under the state constitution to regulate workers' compensation and also address multiple subjects violating another constitutional standard. This case, now the last hope in the challenges to AB5, is now waiting a review by the state appellate court. And in another case, a WCAB panel noted several procedural errors by an employer in affirming a costly home health care award. The consolidated cases filed by Javier Espino against Fullerton Foods for 2001 injuries to multiple body parts were resolved by a compromise and release in 2015. The settlement left open the issues of medical treatment and the lien of his daughter, Belinda Espino, for the home health care she provided for him over the years. The parties proceeded to trial over the issue of home health care lien, both retroactively and prospectively. The employer contended there was no request for authorization, or an RFA, for home health care prior to June 21, 2016 so care before that date could not be awarded. Nonetheless, the work comp judge awarded the disputed home health care prospectively and retrospectively, and reconsideration was denied in the panel decision of Espino versus Fullerton Foods. In resolving the contentions of the parties, the WCAB panel discussed significant procedural errors that occurred in the course of the case. It noted that the June 21, 2016 Utilization Review determination did not specify that applicant's attorney's office was served, although it was addressed to applicant at the address for his attorney's office. And subsequent 2017 Utilization Review determinations were not properly served on his attorney as well. Citing the 2014 Dubon decision, the appeals board held that if UR is untimely, the determination of medical necessity for the treatment requested may be made by the appeals board instead of the UR process. And on the issues of home health care before 2016, an employer has the duty to provide reasonable medical treatment upon learning of the need of the injured worker. This was made clear by the California Supreme Court in 1983 Bolton decision when the Supreme Court wrote that the Labor Code obligation in 4600 to provide medical care requires more 
than a passive willingness on the part of the employer to respond to a demand or request for medical aid. Instead, the labor code requires some degree of active effort to bring to the injured employee the necessary relief. So citing the Bolton case, the WCUE panel cited another procedural error when it said that it does not appear that the employer investigated applicants' need for home health care or provided it pursuant to the opinions of an AME or Dr. Sohn, the treating doctor, despite its duty to expeditiously and actively investigate. The AME stated the applicant needed home health care for eight weeks way back in 2002, well before the case went to UR. But the record does not reflect that the employer provided it or even investigate applicants' need. Instead, post-surgery care was provided by his daughter. Because the employer did not take an active role in providing the needed medical treatment, it becomes liable for the reasonable value of self-procured medical treatment. And the WCEB panel noted another procedural error at the beginning of its opinion when it wrote that its review of the record was complicated by the defendant's failure to comply with the WCEB's rule which provides that a petition for reconsideration shall support its evidentiary statements by specific references to the record. It went on to write that the employer has violated this rule when it failed to support its arguments with specific citations and has not cited to the record as required. They went on to say the defendant cannot evade this responsibility and go ahead and place the burden on the appeals board to discover where the evidence supporting its petition can be found. And finally, the panel noted another procedural error when it wrote that the defendant has filed a response to applicant's answer to petition for reconsideration without permission in violation of a WCAB rule requiring advanced permission to rebut the applicant's position. The takeaway from this case is that the WCAB is clearly urging practitioners and the parties they represent to strictly comply with the procedural requirements of the statutes and regulations that apply. In some cases, such as in the utilization review process, the failure to comply even with the details of service of documents can be a costly mistake. The Worker Adjustment and Retraining Notification Act of 1988, known as the WARN Act, is a federal labor law which requires most employers with over 100 or more employees to provide 60 calendar day advance notification of plant closings and mass layoffs of their employees. This advance notice is intended to give workers and their families transition time to adjust to the prospective loss of employment, to seek and obtain other employment, and if necessary, to enter skill training or retraining programs that will allow these workers to successfully compete in the job market. And in addition to the Federal Warm WARN Act, several states, including California, have enacted similar acts that require similar advance notice. 
A comparison of the key provisions of the federal and California requirements can be seen in the overview published by the Employment Development Department on its website. Employers who violate the Federal WARN Act are required to provide aggrieved employees back pay for each day of a violation. The employer may avoid this liability by proving that it qualifies for the Act's faltering company exemption or that the closing or layoff resulted from unforeseen business circumstances or a natural disaster. And in a case of first impression from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals determined that the economic impact of COVID-19 did not qualify as a natural disaster exemption. Although California is in the Ninth Circuit and the case is not controlling law, it is still illustrative on how courts might view the issue. In the case of ESIM versus U.S. Well Services, a class action complaint was filed by former employees against U.S. Well Services for allegedly violating the Federal Warrant Act by terminating them without any advance notice. U.S. Well argued that COVID-19 was a natural disaster under the Warrant Act and consequently that it was exempt. The district court certified the question of whether or not COVID-19 qualifies as a natural disaster under the Warren Act's natural disaster exception. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals held that the COVID-19 pandemic is not a natural disaster under the Warren Act. However, the case has yet to determine if the drilling company can avoid liability under Warren's unforeseeable business circumstances exception defense, since that issue is not yet an issue on appeal. The answer to that may or may not be forthcoming as litigation in this case progresses. This case is thus far controlling law on the issues decided for employers in Louisiana, Mississippi, and Texas, which is the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal jurisdiction. However, it is only persuasive law in other jurisdictions, such as the Ninth Circuit, which covers California. Nonetheless, it is important to keep this decision in mind as employers navigate through employment law-related business decisions. And now our crime report. 60-year-old George William Hammer of Palm Desert, who is an accountant, and who enabled the owner of a corrupt Long Beach hospital to pay more than $40 million in illegal kickbacks to doctors in exchange for them referring thousands of spinal surgery patients, was sentenced to 15 months in federal prison for a tax offense related to the scheme. He was also ordered to pay an $8,000 fine and forfeit $500,000 in proceeds from the scheme. Hammer pleaded guilty in 2018 to one count of filing a false tax return. He was the financial officer for various companies controlled by Michael D. Drobot, who owned the Pacific Hospital of Long Beach. Drobot conspired with doctors, chiropractors, and marketers to pay kickbacks in return for the referral of thousands of patients to the Pacific Hospital for spinal surgeries paid for primarily through the California workers' compensation system. 
During its final five years, the scheme resulted in the submission of more than $500 million in bills for kickback-tainted surgeries. To date, 22 defendants have been convicted for participating in the kickback scheme. Accountant Hammer supported the kickback scheme by facilitating payments to individuals receiving kickbacks using sham contracts to conceal the illicit payments. He falsified tax returns by characterizing the bribes as legitimate business expenses. Back in 2018, Drobot was sentenced to five years in federal prison for his crimes and awaits a March 2023 sentencing hearing after pleading guilty to three additional criminal charges for violating a court forfeiture order in the Pacific Hospital case by illegally selling his luxury cars. A Los Angeles Police Department officer has just been arrested and charged with forgery for allegedly submitting altered doctor's notes to support workers' compensation benefits. Police officer Crystal Lara, a 12-year veteran of the Los Angeles Police Department who was assigned to the Southwest area, was arrested on a felony arrest warrant. The LAPD's Internal Affairs Division investigated the physician's notes Officer Lara submitted to the department in support of payment of her benefits. The investigation established probable cause to believe the doctor's notes were forged, and Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office filed charges against Officer Lara for forgery. She was booked at the Metropolitan Detention Center, and released after posting $20,000 bail. Officer Lara has been relieved of her police powers awaiting trial. And in regulatory news, consumers, employers, and just about everyone else interested in health care prices will soon get an unprecedented look at what insurers pay for health care perhaps helping answer a question that has long dogged those who buy insurance. The question is, are we getting the best deal we can? As of July 1st, health insurers and self-insured employers must post on its websites just about every price they've negotiated with providers for health care services, item by item. The federally required data release could affect competition for future prices or even how employers contract for health care. And many will see for the first time how well their insurers are doing compared with others. The new July 1st requirements stem from the Affordable Care Act and a 2019 executive order by then-President Donald Trump. And according to Kaiser Health News, The new rules are far broader than those that went into effect last year, requiring hospitals to post their negotiated rates for the public to see. Now insurers must post the amounts paid for every physician in the network, every hospital, every surgery center, and every nursing facility. Insurers or self-insured employers could be fined if they fail to provide the data as required. And starting January 1st next year, the rules require insurers to provide online tools that will help people get upfront cost estimates for about 500 so-called 
shoppable services, meaning medical care they can schedule ahead of time. So everyone should know everyone else's business, such as how much insurers Aetna and Humana pay the same, for the same surgery center for a knee replacement. The Director of Health Policy at the Yale University Institution for Social and Public Studies said this should reduce the wide variance of prices. Still, the biggest value of the July data release may well be to shed light on how successful insurers have been at negotiating prices. It comes on the heels of research that has shown tremendous variation in what is paid for health care. A recent study by the RAND Corporation, for example, shows that employers that offer job-based insurance plans paid, on average, 224% more than Medicare for the same services. Now, tens of thousands of employers who buy insurance coverage for their workers will get this more complete pricing picture and may not like what they see. So, for the first time, an employer will be able to go to an insurance company and say the carrier has not negotiated a good enough deal because another carrier has negotiated a better deal with the same provider. The Workers' Compensation Insurance Rating Bureau of California released its report on workers' compensation losses and expenses for 2021. It says medical losses paid in 2021 were $4.4 billion, or 53% of total loss payments. The largest increase in medical payments was related to medical legal evaluations, mostly attributable to the new medical legal fee schedule adopted effective April 1, 2021. Orthopedic evaluations accounted for about 54% of the costs of all medical legal evaluations, with the average cost of an evaluation at $1,600 in 2021. Psychiatric evaluations were the most expensive, averaging $2,826. Indemnity benefits paid in 2021 were $3.8 billion, or 47% of total lost payments. Of this amount, temporary disability benefits accounted for 54% of indemnity, and permanent partial disability accounted for 35%. In total, about $67 million in vocational rehab-related benefits were paid in calendar year 2021. Insurer incurred loss adjustment expenses which includes the full cost of administering, adjudicating, and settling claims was $2.2 billion, or 16% of earned premium. These incurred loss adjustment expenses include $807 million in defense attorney's expenses in 2021, which was slightly less than the $828 million in defense attorney costs in 2020. Under the Medicare Secondary Payer, or MSP law, which was first enacted back in 1980 and updated many times since then, Medicare may not pay claims when another payment source is available. But if payment from our workers' compensation litigated claim, for example, is not available, Medicare may pay the beneficiary's claim 
and later recover from the settling parties once a case is resolved through a settlement or judgment. If the primary plan refuses to repay Medicare, the government can sue them to collect it. But a problem soon arose about how would the government even know when a group health insurer refused to repay the government, thus forcing the government to pay a Medicare secondary payer claim. To address this issue, Congress added a private cause of action to the MSP law back in 1986, allowing anyone who incurred damages for noncompliance to bring a double damage lawsuit against the insurer and allowing the person suing to keep the money. Whether or not the provision made sense when enacted in 1986, Congress changed the MSP statute in 2007 with a new Section 111 of the law, which rendered the private cause of action theoretically moot by specifically requiring that any entity paying a settlement, judgment, or award report the payment to Medicare which then shares this information with Medicare Advantage and Part D plans. Section 111 requires insurers, including those in workers' compensation, to electronically report settlements and claims to CMS involving Medicare beneficiaries subject to a potential penalty of up to $1,000 a day per claimant for non-reporting compliance. As a result, The Medicare Advocacy Recovery Coalition, they go by the acronym MARC or MARC, they say there's no longer cases where only private parties and not the government are aware of primary plan non-payment. So, there's no longer purpose to the employer private collection reports or efforts. MARC was formed in September 2008 by a group of industry leaders who saw a critical need to improve the MSP system. It has now been instrumental in creating a proposed solution, the Repair Abuse in MSP Payments. The acronym is RAMP, R-A-M-P, which is H.R. 8063, just introduced in Congress to repeal the MSP private cause of action provision. Mark successfully advocated for the passage of other federal law changes back in 2012 and more recently in 2020. The proposed RAMP Act will now face a number of legislative hurdles that will likely take months if not years to overcome before it can become United States law. But one might think that with Mark's support and in light of its successful track record with two prior bills, that the Ramp Act has a decent chance of passage. The U.S. Department of Labor announced a funding opportunity for $11.7 million in Susan Harwood training grants to support the delivery of training and education to help workers and employers identify and prevent workplace safety and health hazards. The OSHA-administered grants will target disadvantaged, underserved, low-income, and other hard-to-reach, at-risk workers and employers. The grants are available to nonprofit organizations, including community-based, faith-based, grassroots organizations, employer associations, labor unions, 
joint labor management associations, Indian tribes, and public state colleges and universities. Applicants may submit applications until August 1, 2022, and must register with www.grants.gov and the System of Award Management to apply. These grants honor the legacy and work of Dr. Susan Harwood, who, during her 17 years with OSHA, developed workplace safety guidelines for benzene, formaldehyde, blood-borne pathogens, and lead in the construction industry. Harwood was also a primary author of OSHA's Cotton Dust Standard, which virtually eliminated bisinosis, a lung disease that causes asthma-like symptoms among textile workers. And in other industry news, WR Berkeley Corporation is a commercial lines property and casualty insurance holding company organized in Delaware and based in Connecticut. It was founded in 1967 and has grown from a small investment management firm into one of the largest commercial lines property and casualty insurers in the United States. It is listed on the New York Stock Exchange and is a Fortune 500 company with gross written premiums in excess of $10 billion. The company now operates commercial insurance businesses in several industrialized countries around the globe. And now there is a new company activity here in California. W.R. Berkeley just announced the formation of Berkeley Enterprise Risk Solutions, which will focus on providing workers' compensation insurance to large businesses headquartered in California. Wayne Bryan has been named president of the new business, and Hale Johnson has been appointed chief operating officer. Berkeley Enterprise Risk Solutions will offer specialized workers' compensation solutions to California-based clients with sophisticated risk management capabilities and interests. The two newly appointed officers both have extensive backgrounds and a wealth of knowledge in the large account California workers' compensation space. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news podcast and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foltz with Floyd, Scarin, Minuki, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.